Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hello, welcome to the Stages podcast and the first of a three-part conversation with Todd McKinney. One of Australia's most versatile performing artists, Todd McKinney is an award-winning and critically acclaimed showman on both stage and screen. As an actor and the leading man of song and dance in musical theatre productions, in 2023, Todd celebrates entertaining audiences for 40 years. As a dancer, his journey started at the age of three at his mother's dancing school in Perth, training in jazz, tap, acrobatics and ballroom dancing. The young McKinney keenly represented Australia in ballroom and Latin American dancing, winning many international dance titles along the way. In this first episode, we begin an insightful and joyous conversation that explores with Todd his venture into breakfast radio, screen appearances in the feature film Unsound, and the recent television drama Significant Others, roles that saw Todd flex his dramatic muscle and prove he has a vast skill set in telling stories. He describes growing up in Perth, his passion for the sign language Auslan, his musical theatre debut in Song and Dance, and his great loves, daughter Charlotte, and a duo of greyhounds called Bob and Nancy Hayes. That certainly gives an insight into the charm and humour of this man, along with his great respect for the product and the people of the industry he navigates. An apprenticeship in musical theatre, ensemble, cameo and supporting roles all prepared Todd for the mantle of leading man, in a vast resume of productions. Ladies and gentlemen, Here's Todd. Good-natured ladies, come and sit smiling up at me. And backward boys abroad who linger till after three. I can see what's never seen, the greatest show that's ever been. The audience is playing for me. A group of strangers turn to friends acting naturally. They laugh and cry and take me just where I want to be When I think of times I've flown the highest There were times I've known The audience is playing for me I don't want to be famous Don't want to work in big halls I might even be hiding When fame and fortune calls Cause if I can't see Smiling backward boys hanging 
Was that Breakfast Radio? Breakfast, yeah, we were at Mix 106. So we filled in for over the summer period for their regular team, breakfast crew team, and it did incredibly well over the summer, so we ended up with the gig. Is it a hard gig? Um, I imagine you have to get up quite early. It's a really hard gig, yes. So I was living in Bondo working in Ryde, um, which is 23 kilometres away, 24, um, and you so I would get up at four four fifteen probably, and then be at the studio by quarter to five. Um, it was hard getting up; it never got easier. It was easy driving there, and then but when you got there, you realised there's a whole world already in motion, and so you kind of just got swept up into that world. So that was okay, but then. Driving home again, you were then always faced with the decision, do you go to bed for another couple of hours and then feel terrible for the rest of the day or do you stay up? And that was the hardest part. Going to, not getting up early, going to bed early was the hard part. Yeah, well, it killed the nightlife. It kills your nightlife, it kills your friendships. It's, mm. it's how, how people like Jonesy and Amanda do it for that long. Decades. Bridget Duclos, same thing, decades. You know, that's I take my hat off to them because it's, it's a hard gig. The other thing that's hard about it too is your antenna is always up. So you've got 25 talk breaks to do in the period of the show. So that's 25 topics. That's a lot. Mm. Like, you know, so between Sonia and I, I would live with a notepad in my pocket and jot down anything. It might be that um, somebody screamed at me because I parked in the wrong spot at Woolies or it might, you used your family a lot. Yeah, and then yeah. they get the shits with you because they get sick of <laughs> saying anything to you yeah. that they don't know is about to end up on air. So your family, your friends start saying to you, don't use this on air mm. before they launch into anything. So trying to find talk topics every day was hard, but it's a skill and you get better at it. Um, but yeah, it's a lonely shift because uh, of your times. And then the only w- little window you've got of freedom where you can really relax is a Friday. Because Friday you can have dinner with friends, whatever, because you've got Saturday off. But then by Sunday, you've got the notepad out again, looking for topics. Um, and so, and, and you've got to get in, then get up early on Monday. So, yeah, they pay you really well and you put your hand out and you say, I'll accept that, thanks very much. But I loved it. 
And I love it. And at least it's not breakfast TV because you can look like shit. No, absolutely. And we did, often. <laughs> well, not that Sonia ever looked like shit, but I definitely did. <laughs> well, Todd, something you have been doing for decades is, is the stage. I think it's 40 years this year that you It's 40 years. Yeah, 21st so. of June, 1983. I started in an Andrew Lloyd Webber show, Song and Dance, um, at the Adelaide Festival Centre. Uh, an incredible show. It was it was great. It didn't do an amazing business. I think it was a bit ahead of its time. I saw an excerpt on Parkinson in Australia recently. Oh, of the show. Of the show. Oh, and wow. you're there. You were dressed as some sort of intellectual I'm a nerd. nerd. Yeah, yeah, I was, was a nerd. I was going to be nice. I was a big <laughs> speckled nerd. Yeah, no, I'm still oh, a nerd. Oh, you haven't seen that? You might, you no, might, I haven't seen that. You might find it on an iView or something. Yeah, I'll yeah. go and have a look at it. It was amazing. So it was called Song and Dance. So the first half was song. So it was Gay McFarlane singing the songs from Tell Me on a Sunday, mm. which is a great little story. Great. You know. And uh, Bernadette Peters, I think, did it. Elaine Page has done it yep. in London. Sarah Brightman. Oh, Sarah Brightman did it. And, um, and then the second half is dance. So the first half is a song show about relationships. The second half is a dance show about relationships. And we all had characters. It was a very small cast. But I think the audience that were coming, because it was called Song and Dance... Were and it was Andrew Lloyd Webber. Were, they were a bit older, and I think they were expecting straw hat, cane, and tap shoes. I think they thought that sort of razzmatazz song and dance, and it definitely wasn't that. Mm. But I loved it, and everyone in the show kept saying, because of my first show, kept saying, "They're not all like this, Todd. They're not all like this," because it was so small, and mm. we really we we created friendships out of it that last to this day. Well, a perfect little ensemble of dancers too. Leonie Page was Leonie in it. Page. Yeah, John Meehan was the lead, and he's an Australian who worked for Netherlands Dance Company or ran Netherlands Dance Company for many years. A great ballet dancer. Yes, um, yeah, there was it was an amazing. Shuri de Costa was in it as well, and yeah, it was a great cast. So you had to come over from Perth for that. Uh, how did you about the audition? Or did somebody poach you? Or no. Um, so I was working at the Morley Rollerdrome. The Morley's a suburb in Perth where my mum's dancing school was. And I was working at the Morley Rollerdrome um, for Alma and Eric Millett, who ran it, and their son, Tony Millett, was a dancer at my mum's school. And I was the DJ at the Rollerdrome. That was where I would go in between classes and, you know, pick up a bit of cash, you know, at 15, 16, 17. And then um, Tony wanted to go. He, he saw the audition uh, advertised in the Australian newspaper and he wanted to go. By the time the audition was, I was working as a travel agent in Perth and I was earning $110 a week and I was happy as Larry with that. I thought that was amazing. And so I didn't want to go because Tony's mum wanted me to uh, accompany Tony to the audition. She didn't want him to go on his own. And so anyway, Tony talked me into going. We went. I got the role. Um, and I remember getting... I got picked up by John Robertson... Uh, Robbo, people yep. in our industry affectionately know him as, who picked us up at the Adelaide airport and we, Tony and I sat in the back of the car and Robbo gave us, because I was 17. Was that Adelaide Festival Trust produced? Adelaide Festival yeah, Trust yeah. produced, Hence yes. Robbo, yeah. Hence Robbo. And he gave us this spiel, and Robbo will tell this story too, he gave us this spiel about not to get disappointed, there's a lot of people going for these roles and... Well, I got my back up a little bit about it because I was a bit bolshy at that point <laughs> and uh, nothing's changed. And uh, I remember saying to him, look, I don't know what you think, you know, we're going to be like because we're from Perth and you know, no one really knew Perth. People weren't really doing much over east, mm. as we used to call it. 
And um, he was giving us this pep talk, you know, about because he knew we'd never auditioned before. And um, I piped up and said, look, I don't know what you think you're getting here, but we're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, yeah, I got, I got the role. And so I know it's the 21st of June that I walked into the green room and met everybody for the first time. Rhonda Birchmore, she was understudying Gay McFarlane, who was the, the singer in the first half. Um, Leonie Page and, you know, people who are friends with, with me today. Because um, the 21st of June is my sister's birthday, so right. it's 40 years this year. Are you likely to be on stage on the 21st of June this year? I won't be on stage on the 21st of June, but I've just, put, to celebrate the 40 years, I've just remounted a show which I do in between musicals or other projects, um, which is me celebrating Peter Allen, of course, and I do small theatres and the big clubs. Uh, and so I've remounted that to celebrate, you know, The Boy From Oz, which I'm sure you'll get to. Mm, <laughs> it was such a, an amazing time in my life. And um, so... I, uh, I'm, I'm putting that show back together. The 21st, I don't think, falls on a weekend this time, but I just do weekends with that show. And, uh, but yes, I will be working in that time to celebrate the 40 years. Brilliant. Um, well, it's great to, to have this conversation with you, Todd. I, I'm not aware of any other musical theatre leading man in the country who has many notches on their belt as you do as far as musicals mm. go. Um, it's... Yeah, I've had it's an extraordinary career. It is, um, yeah. and you've also, you know, you've and I'm grateful for it. Like I say, it is. I don't, I don't mean to sound conceited when I say it is, but it really is. Like I've, I've absolutely been blessed with the support from John Frost, particularly, um, who, well, he's, he's guided me through it and and asked me what I want to do, and he's 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 done more than just put me in a show to sell shows. He says to me things like. Because I'll say, can I be in that? Is there anything for me in that? And he'll go, no, your audience don't want to see you do that. So I feel like John's always cared about the shows I go in, but it does feel like I'm in a lot of his shows. <laughs> and we're just friends. Oh, yes, <laughs> let's, make that, let's make that quite clear. <laughs> when I did Shrek, actually, because yeah. I played Lord Farquaad in Shrek and Frosty asked me to do that. And um, at the press call, Ian Phipps, publicist to the stars did make the public announcement that it's not the first time I'd been on my knees for a show <laughs> Frosty because Lord Farquhar is four foot tall absolutely. so I did the entire show on my knees yeah. um, so I would like to clarify just friends that's that's it's good to know that <laughs> but, but you've certainly served your time I mean from you know song and dance in in the chorus and you worked your way up to ensemble roles and supporting roles mm. to to eventually um, the, the lead roles so yeah that's really important. I did well when I left Perth I, I I'm a, what I would call a dancer's dancer. Like I, all I ever wanted to do was dance, and I loved dance. And in Perth, I wanted to be the best male dancer in Perth. And then when I got into song and dance, the competitive streak came out in me, and I wanted to be the best commercial dancer in Australia. And that's what I wanted. To, I always strove for that. So, if somebody would say, if the choreography called for a triple pirouette or a triple chenet, I would do five and six. I've always wanted to be that but then it became very evident to me after song and dance which was purely a dance show that um, I'd have to learn to sing which I didn't um, and I was terrible uh, so it became very clear to me that I had to I had to get that skill under my belt and as soon as I did get that skill under my belt um, and I'm still getting it under my belt um, that opened up a whole stack of opportunities to play leading men yeah. 
Well, um, you're obviously at home on the stage. Look, I'm not pissing in your pocket, but <laughs> every time I go to a show that you're in, I feel I feel like I'm in safe hands. And, you know, oh. you're going to be entertained. It's going to be a good you. show. Um, I went to Hairspray opening night, mm. you know, which is a fantastic production. I think it's just so beautifully cast. But mm. that that duet you do with Shane Jacobson, <laughs> you know, timeless to me, yeah. is, just says everything about <laughs> perfection in musical theatre. Well, it well it, you're also dealing with two old hams <laughs> on stage, and that number, you know, is uh, it, it's unlike anything else in the show. It's a what we call a front cloth number, so we're literally in front. Well, it of harks back to vaudeville. And, it's vaudeville. Yeah, it's yeah. two vaudevillians yeah. out there, and also. So I get, Shane's one of my dearest friends. Shane and I have a shorthand from working together and Shane and I became friends within 10 minutes of meeting each other for the first time and we can finish each other's sentences. We can definitely finish each other's gags. And with Shane, I've learned in unscripted stuff like on television or even scripted stuff like Hairspray, where we do have a bit of licence to go off script in our particular part of the show that it's never going to be the same twice. And if Shane lobs something to me, he feels safe that I'm going to pick it up. I might not pick it up the way he thinks I'm going to pick it up. And it's the same for me. If I lob something to Shane, I don't know where it's going to go, but I know it's going to be fun. And I don't think there's another person I've ever worked with where I have that synchronicity and shorthand and comfortableness with. Um, and it's, it's gold for me because I feel like I'm in incredibly safe hands working with him. And I'm pretty sure Shane would say the same. Yes, that spontaneity of, of improvisation, in, when it works, mm. and you know you've got someone that you can trust, is, mm. is, is gold. And it is. I dare say we'll get into it later too, but you know your television work relies mm. on a lot of that also, the, the, your, your t- uh, screen partners and, and how you... Yes, and I, I think it's why I like radio too. Like in, in, the, in the... I think we did two and a half years of, of Breakfast... It's the part of my brain that spontaneity and ad-libbing and um, off-the-cuff engages really intrigues me. And I like the fact, like talking to you now, having to think about, because it's just oral, having to think about what's what I'm saying and to make it entertaining and stuff is what thrills me. So when I do my one-man shows, like the Peter Allen show I was just mentioning, if I have a good show, it's not the singing and the dancing. It's whether the chat worked. Mm. And I, when I was studying Boy From Oz, one of the questions I had, because of Gail Edwards, the director's um, intelligence and experience too, she said, you need to find out why Peter Allen was popular to a very general public crowd and able to be himself on stage. And they bought it. You know, his flamboyance and all of that, and he skated that thin edge of, you know, am I or aren't I? And all, all, but they bought it in droves, and I went to see him, and I was part of that general public audience. And from watching all, and all the research I did on him and from shows that his family had given me to watch and stuff, it dawned on me one day it's the chat. And so the chat is really important to me, whether that's on television or radio or in my one-man shows. Setting out, setting out to want to be, you know, a great commercial dancer in Australia. I guess you had no idea that television and radio would also be in your orbit no. during the career. Oh, God, no. No, I hadn't. No, no, when I started to do publicity for shows, and 42nd Street was the first time I had to do publicity, it, it was always the radio appearances that actually gave me the biggest thrill. Um, and I, I think I like radio particularly because is an instant connection to the audience, like there is on stage, where you, in radio, particularly breakfast radio, if you push 
your audience's buttons, the phone lines go bang. And you go, oh, right, we're on to something. You get that immediate feedback. In theatre, it's the applause, mm. or it's what Mike Walsh used to call the cough count. You don't want a house full of people coughing because that means they're bored out of their brains. Mm. And he would always say, always call the coughing out, and they're coughing. And, it's, and television is just not quite like that. Television is, is you're, a bit, you're more removed. You've got a bank of machinery in front of you before you reach the audience, so your performance has to be quite different. And then before social media particularly, you then have to wait a day before you read how much people hated you. Whereas <laughs> you, in radio and television, in radio and theatre, you know straight away. <laughs> radio is much more intimate also. It's like, you know, there's the microphone in front of you. And you are speaking to, um, there might be you know, thousands of, tens of thousands of, hundreds of thousands yeah. of people listening, but there's that one person that, that you're talking to. Yeah. I mean, person listening to this podcast now mm. is probably alone. They're on the, on the treadmill, they're, they're travelling to work Have or you something. you only got one person? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got my mum now, to the, and I'll listen, there'll be oh, two of us. <laughs> good to know. Oh, yes. I didn't believe what people said about you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. Like, and they, but they say that about television too. One of the hardest things I think on television is to actually be yourself, because you've got that, you know, you've got the lights. You, you're very aware of the camera. Whereas mm. I'm not very aware of the microphone, and that's been mm. my downfall. Yes. Often, yeah. but you're very aware of the camera, and I think anybody is when somebody puts a camera in their face. And so oh, yeah. to that's be yourself on, uh, on television is, uh, I think that's, uh, that's tricky. Uh, New York, home of musical theatre, mm. you know, the Yanks in, invented the form. Have you got to travel much to Broadway and, and see work? Oh, yes, I've seen a lot. I've been to yeah. Broadway lots. Nancy Hayes and I always talk about Broadway. She loves Broadway as much as I do. Um, yes, I've travelled there for, and seen shows. I remember... Is there a show that stands out? Uh, the, yeah, I, Les Mis for me yeah. on Broadway. I, I went to and saw Les Mis. Cameron McIntosh actually gave us tickets. I went with Simon Gallagher. And it looked to me like it was a bit of a serious night out. I was more into the Will Rogers Follies and yeah. Sugar Babies. And I just wanted a bit of razzmatazz, 42nd Street. I didn't want to see, you know, the French Revolution. And I just thought, God, that's going to be hard work. Why do we have to go to this? Um, and it had been open three weeks, and I went begrudgingly, sat in the theatre, and I had one of the most, and to this day, one of the most incredible theatrical experiences of my life. When the lights came up at interval, I had forgotten I was in the theatre, mm. and I got a shock of my life. And I remember seeing this man's head and hairy back of his neck in front of me. I know it's a weird image, a very large man. And the lights came up and I was staring at this man's head and a hairy neck and it, it was like I got sucked back into my seat and I went, oh, wow, I'm in the theatre. And it's only ever happened to me. An experience like that has only ever have, happened to me twice. And that, it's powerful. That's powerful. I went, oh, wow, this is theatre. Not like I know it. That was something else. I could never do that sort of theatre. But I really appreciated it. And the other time I had a, a similar experience was Dame Edna at the Palais in Melbourne. Wow. I was so engrossed in the way she chatted to the crowd and had the crowd just eating out of her hands. And when the show finished, I realised I had had a very, very similar experience. I was just right in there, you know, and it's powerful stuff when that happens. They're the nights that we live for. That, that, that keep us going back to the theatre, isn't it? Absolutely, and you can't get that from any other medium. Yeah. 
May 31st, happy birthday. Oh, thanks. Uh, make sure a Gemini. <laughs> Are there two Todds? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, there is. Um, I think not so much... Well, not so much in the performance side. Like a, what, kind of what you see is what you get when you talk to me. But I have a Todd that's very vague and can lie on the couch and eat shell chocolates and watch reruns of Beaches a lot. There's that Todd. Um, but there's also a Todd that gets things done. And I quite like him. When, when I wake up as him, I go, all oh, right, we're him today. So that's, now's the Todd. Today's the Todd who rings Telstra and who pays his fines or his, what, you know, what I, lo- I have definitely have those, those two Todds. But I, I'm, I'm not as um, extroverted, I think, as some people would think I am. So are you a shy person? Uh, when it comes to relationships and that sort of thing, yes, yes definitely. Yeah. Uh, what makes you happy? Oh, the Hawkesbury River, um, people laughing. Um, to, to, this is, if we go back to the hairspray thing, my favourite thing about that number I do with Shane is that's probably one of the one or two, maybe three max times in my life where, oh, Shrek was another one, Lord Farquaad and Shrek, where to hear an audience laughing at something I've done is like, it's like mother's milk to me. That's, mm. I ache, I live for that, but I live for that in my private life too. Like I, you know, if you make me laugh, I'm yours. Yeah, you it's know? fantastic. It yeah. really, and you can't fake it. And I hate people who, uh, who, fake, who fake that. You can't fake it. No, and an no. audience can't fake it either. No. And so when you know you've just done that, you've just given them that sensation, that's, um, that's what keeps me going back. Yeah, yeah no, we're lucky if there's those two or three people in our lives that we can sit down with, have a conversation and just Chuck. lose control no, with laughter. Totally. You know, yes. Your tummy hurts yeah, from yeah, laughing. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, your two flatmates obviously bring you much joy as well. Oh. Nancy Hayes and Bob. <laughs> I live with Nancy Hayes. <laughs> I said that to Nancy. Oh, so I've got two greyhounds. I've had greyhounds. I've had a number of greyhounds over the years. Um, and I do some work for um, the great greyhounds as pets, uh, finding homes for ex-racing dogs and I love them and Nancy Hayes the actress um, loved my last dog Chrissy who passed away and I decided to get another one and I picked her up from um, Wyong in uh, up at the north coast and as I was driving back in the car I was looking in the rear vision mirror of this beautiful blue, they call it. She's grey and soft and gorgeous. Dog who was standing in the back seat not knowing what was going on to her, for her. And she was staring in my rear vision mirror and I thought, and her name was Amy, they called her Amy. And I wanted to give her, I wanted to name her myself. So she had a big long racing name, but when she went to the kennels to be rehomed, they just gave her a name that I think families would like. And so she was Amy, but she was only Amy for three or four days. So she didn't really know her name. I thought, I want to name this one, because the others I'd had, I just kept the names they came with. And then I thought, oh, Nancy Hayes. <laughs> so I rang Nancy on the way back, and I said, Nance, I've got, I've got this new dog, and I want to name her after somebody I love. Would you mind if I called her Nancy Hayes the Greyhound? And she said, oh, darling, I'd, I'd be honoured. And then she said, oh, she'll be a needy little thing. <laughs> and then every now and again, Nancy would send me text messages saying, have you fed me today or have you walked me yet? And then whenever she sends me text messages now, she signs them off with Nancy Hayes the actress. And so I live with Nancy Hayes. And then Queenie van der Zandt, who you might know yeah, is a fabulous yeah. theatre performer and comedian and 
go-getter. And a great friend of mine, she rang me the first day I had Nancy and I was sitting on um, my couch in my lounge room and Nancy Hayes the Greyhound had, had stepped up on the couch and she'd slid and put her head behind, my, behind me into the cushions and Queenie van der Zandt rang me and I'd only had Nancy Hayes the Greyhound for about four or five hours at that point. She said, what are you doing? I said, well, Queenie, you're not going to believe this. I'm sitting on my couch with Nancy Hayes' wet nose in the middle of my back. <laughs> and it just took off from there. And now I've, I've then had another boy, Joey, who was 12 and a half when he passed away. Um, he passed away and I, I've got another dog now to, who, um, who moved into the household. And so Nancy Hayes, the actress's husband, is Bob Bertel, <laughs> fabulous jazz musician and wonderful man. And so I called him Bob. So I live with Nancy Hayes and Bob Bertle. It's not many women who can say that they've got a greyhound and a theatre named after. And a cat, apparently. Who's got the cat? I thought I had the original idea of the century. Apparently there's a cat running around <laughs> in Nancy Hayes. Nancy Hayes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that original. So I do. I wake up with Nancy Hayes in my bed every day. Uh, what well, Nancy Hayes co-starred with you in Significant Others, didn't she? No. In, oh, well, the, the, the Nancy, television show. Yeah, Nancy, Nancy Hayes, ha- the Greyhound. Nancy Sorry, Hayes, the Greyhound. Nancy Hayes, no, the yes. Actress, yeah. So Nancy Hayes. So I got the script for Significant Others, the ABC drama, which I loved. Um, You're fantastic. I, well, it was a, that was a new experience. That's yeah. that's been the most exciting thing I've done in a long time because it was outside my comfort zone and I was a new. Ex- it was in the theatre world, but it was a new experience, and I was. Oh, I was I was petrified that I was going to be too big, but I was in such safe hands, and oh, I loved it. Anyway, my character—I'm reading the script. Tommy Murphy written the script, and my character had um, a, a greyhound called Norell. And so we were at the first day of rehearsals, and I said to him, "Where are you getting your greyhound from?" And he said, "Oh, don't talk to me about the greyhound. That's costing us a fortune." And I said, "Well, I've got two. I've got Nancy Hayes. Yes. She needs to be in this. And she and, share my dressing room. Yeah, which, and she did. <laughs> and so Nancy Hayes became Norell. So at home I started calling Nancy Norell every now and again just so she wouldn't be look bewildered on the shoot. And, um, and then Tommy said, do you have a photo of Nancy? And I said, yeah, I do. And so I sent it through to him, got to work a few days later, and there on the cast board is... Todd McKinney playing Wayne, Ken Morolita playing Dan, Rachel Blake playing Ursula, and all the cast lists with their name and their character. And then the bottom right-hand corner was a picture of Nancy Hayes the Greyhound, and it said, Narelle, Nancy Hayes. <laughs> and so I took a photo of it, and I sent it to Nancy, and I said, you've made the cast list. And Nancy replied to with, oh, I'm going to send the ABC an invoice, and they'll probably pay it. <laughs> so it was great. I was waiting for her to have a credit. I really wanted to see Narelle and Nancy Hayes um, on the credits, but she didn't, she didn't make the cut. But she's in the show, and she did a sterling job. She did, she did. Mm. Um, you played Uncle Wayne. I did. Who was a florist. Yes, yeah, Sydney's most eligible great gay florist. Yeah. And um, Nathan Starkey in Strictly Ballroom was a landscape, had a landscape in business. <laughs> yes, you think there's a <laughs> theme. There's a theme here. <laughs> there's a theme. And, and you've seen my garden. Of there course, I walked into this beautiful garden. Um, you obviously like, enjoy gardening. That's I a, do. Sort of it's some downtime for you. Mm. Yeah, it's a passion of mine. I didn't. I went from having a courtyard in Tamarama, um, and which was great but didn't take much effort to having this whatever what I've got now just half an acre in the leafy upper north shore of very uh, sort of I don't know sophisticated and elegant elegant yeah. garden yeah I know I love it I, I'm like the guy in the colour bond 
ad who you see on TV who grabs his coffee and walks outside in his undies and stares up at his roof. That's me in the mornings with, with the, the garden. garden. Yeah. Well, it looks like Edward Scissorhands has been out there. Well, they reckon, yeah, they, they, they call me that around here. They reckon if I can't hedge it, it can't be hedged. <laughs> um, There's a lot of bush jokes goes on with my garden. Really? No. <laughs> Will you come over and trim my bush? <laughs> if I hear that one more time. <laughs> Congratulations, too, on the film Unsound, mm. which I saw at the Mardi Gras Film Festival last year. Um, it was terrific. Uh, as were you, and again, I'm not pissing in your pocket. It was just so great to see you, like like um, significant others, outside your comfort zone. Mm. You know, I haven't not, seen it. Haven't you? No, and the reason I haven't... Look, and all, I, I, I rarely, rarely watch myself back in anything or listen to myself back in anything, even Dancing with the Stars. I've probably watched over 16, 17 episode, uh, series. I've probably watched myself back three times because um, I've... I don't know. I just think, oh, why am, why am I slurring? I mean, when I listen to this, I'll probably think, why am I slurring? Why am I talking so fast? Your mother won't. Why am I talking too much? No. Your mother will love it. <laughs> and you're paying per word, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> keep talking. Um, um, yeah, so I didn't... So I haven't watched it back because I just thought I'll, um, I'll, I'll rip myself to shreds and, you know, pick on my own performance. So I'd rather feel it. Like in theatre, yeah. you never get the chance to watch yeah. yourself back. You can feel it. And with theatre, of course... You, the audience let you know. That's why I don't really care about reviews for theatre either, because you, the audience is you, you review every night, and you know when you're, you know when you're flying and when you're tanking. But uh, with the movie, I just, oh, I don't know. I just haven't been able to bring myself to watch it yet. Maybe you'll be like Norma Desmond when you're when you're older and you'll play old videos and oh, no. DVDs no, and, yes, work I'm sure. and, well, yes. and watch them and say, no, oh, yes. it was wonderful. <laughs> Why didn't I look at this look sooner? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Yeah. In Unsound, you played um, uh, Finn's father, Lewis. Mm. Finn was a, a young trans man um, and hearing impaired. Yes. And you... you uh, I was going to say you spoke Auslan, but you performed Auslan, mm. um, yep. sign language in the film. Yeah. Uh, did you learn it for the film or had you been doing it beforehand? No, I, um, well, if we go right back, I had been learning it beforehand is the short answer. So I, during The Boy From Oz, I had to do a an interview for the weekend magazine in the Sydney Morning Herald. And it was just a little list of, basically, it was a bucket list, really, 10 things you want to sort of tick off before you leave this earth and um, on that list it was quite an insignificant bit of publicity for me but on that list number three was I would love to learn sign language one day I think it's such an expressive and beautiful language did you have hearing impaired friends or no I'd seen for in during 42nd street we had two Auslan interpreters sign the show on the side of the stage, as a lot of your listeners will be familiar with. It's quite, it's a great, if you have the opportunity to see a show, which is the day it's signed, it's, you get two shows for one. It's really interesting. Well, even with those you know, daily COVID reports and um, oh, yeah. bushfire reports, there's often a, a well, signer uh, working alongside the Yes, and I know all those people now. Yeah. So it was great. My friends were up there. Yeah. Um, and now I'm patron of Auslan Stage Left, which is a professional theatrical interpreting, um, Auslan interpreting company. But, um, yes, yeah, so I remember from... Um, the two interpreters during 42nd Street, and we're talking 1989 or ni- early 1990, that was the first time I'd seen it. And sign singing is very expressive and it's beautiful and it's really exaggerated. And the signers, even though they're not speaking, they have to interpret with their whole body mm. as well as their hands. 
Um, and I just nearly fell off the stage. I thought it was so interesting. And it just always stuck in my psyche. And so when I did that little interview, my number three point was that, the next day I was contacted by the Australian Theatre of the Deaf, a lady called Caroline Conlon, who's deaf herself, who was the director of the Australian Theatre of the Deaf, and said, we're looking for a patron. Noni Hazelhurst had been their patron and she was leaving to do something else. Her time was being taken up elsewhere and she wasn't giving it the commitment she thought it deserved and she thought it's better to pass it on to somebody else. They said, would you be interested? We will teach you one-on-one to sign if you'll be patron. So I said yes. So Caroline and a friend of hers, Andrew, came over to my house in Tamarama. One day we sat in the back and we, I stumbled through trying to talk to two deaf people and... We, we got there and she said, well, do you want to start? And so she, I said, sure. And so it was a funny situation because she came over the next week with a piece of paper with a list of words. And the first thing she asked me to do was tell her what I'd done the day before. She said, but I don't want you to talk. And so I didn't have any skills. So she just wanted to see how expressive my gesticulation was when I talk. And I'm quite handsy when I talk mm-hmm. anyway. And at other times too, but we won't go to that. Uh, <laughs> you might want to sit over there. Yes. No. <laughs> no, so so I told her this story. You're blushing. So I told her this story, right? Yeah. And it was about going to the shops and what I bought and I took the dogs with me and all of that. And she said, yeah, you'll be a good candidate. Mm. And we started learning words on a page and I found it incredibly difficult. Just memory, you know, it's teaching an old dog a new trick and... Then I actually got to a point with it when she came over, I thought, I'm not going to be able to do this. Like, but there, it wasn't like I was listening to an audible you know, CD or whatever, something on Spotify teaching me how to speak another language. I, was had, a, I had a deaf lady in front of me yeah. who lives and breathes that every single day. Yeah. And so that's what made me go, right, I'm committed. And so I sort of dived headfirst into the deaf community and I think it's a bit like if you want to learn French it's probably easy to be in France when you're learning it it's kind of the same for the deaf community so I um I just went headfirst into the deaf community and um yeah so for a long time there I was very fluent in it I think I they call it toddland actually when I talk to the deaf community because I think I'm oh I know I make up my own signs but they've embraced that um uh and then a lot of my friends were deaf and we would have you know, dinner parties and I'd be surrounded by deaf people. And um, the deaf community uh, is a wonderful community and it's uh, what I realised is the energy it takes to be a deaf person or I think a person with any disability mm-hmm. in society um, is it takes a lot of energy. You know? And just watching people's the prejudice, prejudices but, uh, that people have towards deaf people, like Caroline and I would go out um, and people would only talk to me and, you know, I'd say, yeah. I'd say, well, talk clearly. What does she want, they'd say. Yeah. I'd say, well, if you talk clearly, don't slow your speech down. Just talk clearly and, um, and you ask her yourself, you know. And so that's tiring for somebody. So I have a really healthy respect for, for the deaf community. Anyway, I, and it's a great language. Like, mm. because Caroline and I, could, we could talk about you while you're sitting here and you would have absolutely no idea. No idea. No idea. <laughs> and we've done that. Not about you particularly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so, so it's great. And then I, um, in, I went unsound. And I've done it in, I've done it in 
public with Caroline a couple of times. I interpreted the... Um, I signed the interpreter of the Year Awards once um, in Melbourne, which I was absolutely shitting myself over because it was a room full of professional interpreters and I was like, well, what the hell am I doing here? And that was the first time I'd signed in public. Um, and, but it was great. And they were so appreciative that, you know, I'm sure I got things wrong, but they were so appreciative. Um, and then uh, Caroline and I, I did some showbiz Broadway-style concerts with a few other artists with the Sydney Symphony at the Opera House. And I said to Caroline, why don't you come with me and why don't we sign something at the Opera House? So we did. So we signed Don't Cry Out Loud, Peter Allen's Don't Cry Out Loud and I Honestly Love You. And we started with I Honestly Love You and I sang it and signed it with Caroline and then I stopped signing and just Caroline signed Don't Cry Out Loud and then I picked it up for the end. And it, it when I say that when a... a th- 2,000 people in a theatre laugh, it's thrilling. When 2,000 people are absolutely silent, it's just as thrilling mm. if they're silent for the right reasons. And it's, I mean, I've got goosebumps talking about it now. I've never heard that many people be so still. And on the last note of, of the song, they just roared. And I could see the pride in Caroline's face. I was proud. And uh, so every now and again, I, I get it out and I do it. And then Unsound came along and so it was a perfect fit. Perfect fit, yeah. Mm. yeah. You had the skills. Can you take your hand off my knee now? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> I thought you hadn't noticed. I thought you were numb down there. <laughs> Stop it. Stop I'm hitting my leg. Um, so Uncle Wayne and mm. Lewis, they're both paternal roles. Yes. You're a dad yourself. Yeah. How did fatherhood change as a performer, do you think, if, if there was in any way that... Oh, no, look, I don't think it did. Um, I've always loved kids. I mean, I grew up in a dancing school environment, so I was surrounded by kids of all ages from the time I was three. Because mum had hundreds and hundreds of students, and I used to run the front desk as soon as I was old enough to. So, I, you know, I dealt with the parents and lots of kids and just surrounded by kids so I've always had that kind of you know sort of you know want to uh, and, and understanding of uh, how kids operate and uh, so yeah they were both sort of perfect fits for me. Had you always wanted to be a dad? Not really not necessarily well I grew up in a time when it just wasn't an option for gay people mm. really mm. You know, I grew up I was born in 65 so you know, I really grew up and that was, would never have even entered anybody's head. No. And even when we, Anne and I did it, it was still, it was still a bit of a scandal when it happened. We yeah. were kind of at the beginning of all of that. Well, we didn't do it to cause scandal. We just did it because we'd talked about it when we were younger and um, Anne was one of my best friends. And, um, and so I can't say I'd always wanted to be a dad, but when the opportunity was there I was totally up for it and it was actually my idea to I called Anne actually and said do you remember what we spoke about when we were in our 20s mm. what should we think about it and it was it was a yes yes and no brainer and so we did yeah and had, I'm glad we did had anything made you clucky to sort of make that suggestion no I just were felt content around? in my yeah. life it was yeah. my 40th birthday it was the right. day that I and I was on my own in Tamarama I was going out for dinner that night um, and I remember lying on my couch and the sun was streaming in the lounge room window and I just felt content. 
I was, you know, I had great success with the boy from Oz. I was financially secure. I was happy where I was and in my life. And I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do it, you know, and Anne was my age too, and I, you know, was very aware of the biological clock for yes. women particularly. Yeah. And um, so I just made the call, and yeah, we just took, took it from there. And it was, uh, yeah, it was an eye opener, you know, really. And the more I get, more clucky as I get more into it yeah. you know as, as charlotte grows older I'm, I'm more lucky that i was really at the beginning <laughs> that's fantastic yeah fantastic. it is um with your stage commitments television um concerts uh, you're very busy you know mm. this, this conversation i think has <laughs> taken 18 months to finally pin down <laughs> which is wonderful for you are you a workaholic yeah yeah i am yeah, yeah. I, I while i when i say i can lie on the couch and watch reruns of beaches and eat shell gillane chocolates um I, I fidget all the time. I've always got my motor running and I'm single. And I've been single for 13 years. And I always wonder whether the, <laughs> I'm single because I work so much or whether I work so much because I'm single. So, but, so I've got the time. I've really only got me to look after. I mean, of course, there's Charlotte and mum and the family. But um, I've got time to work. And I, I, I think, I don't know if I'm a workaholic, but I, my work for me, defines me. I'm happiest when I'm at work mm. um, and I'm happiest when my work is successful. I've often pondered that. I'm, I'm single too and you think... That's why I have my hand on your so, leg, you oh, see. right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd Googled you. Behave, behave, rumour, <laughs> rumour. Rumor. Um, but I often wonder, I stay those extra two, three hours at work because, you know, I don't have to be home at a certain time sure. to do family or partner or, or whatever. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's a catch-22, isn't it? It is think, a catch-22, yeah. Do I then start to go home at home time so <laughs> maybe meet Mr. Right yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or what? Yeah. Well, I think the thing too is that I think it gives me the opportunity to say yes to everything because I don't really have the commitment where I need to be at home with the kids and the family because, you know, Charlotte lives in Melbourne and I see, even though I see her an enormous amount. Um, I, I can say yes to things. And so I think that's also been one of the keys to my success, I suppose, is that I, people know that I'm probably going to be available. Yeah. And, um, and I learned a long time ago that saying yes to things is, is really exciting because you never know what's going to open up or where you're going to end up. So I've never been very selective. Um, so I've appeared in a few turkeys, by the way. <laughs> I shouldn't have said yes. <laughs> well, that was my next question. What do you put the, the longevity of your career down to? I mean, it is saying yes, but there's been a bit of reinvention along the way too. Hmm. Um, I think it's... Uh, I think it's, I have lots of strings to my bow. I think that's... You know, when if television, like at the moment, there's not much television for me, um, and so therefore the theatre rises to the top and... In between that, then I'll do my club show um, and or my regional theatre show, and that rises to the top. And maybe when I'm not doing that, maybe another the ABC thing will lead to another drama series. So I think it's that I play in so many different worlds, and I'm also happy to MC events, corporate events, and stuff like that. So I think that's if I ever talk to students, which I do from time to time, that's and they say, "What's your advice?" That's always my advice is to. Uh, to say yes to to everything and you know try your hand at all different parts of the industry and there's um, fulfillment in lots of different areas it, you know you don't just want to be the star of Les Mis your whole life because it's chances are it's not going to happen but you might end up being a fabulous props department supervisor and just be in the theatre in another part of it and 
get rewarded that way. That's what I always say, just don't close your, your mind off. Was Perth a good place to grow up in? Yes, it was wonderful. Mm. And I always wanted to dance. And my mother was a dancing teacher. My grandmother taught, taught dancing as well. And, you know, I did ballroom dancing. And, you know, I was the DJ at the roller skating rink. And it was a really easy lifestyle. Yeah, I was, I was brought up in the days where you'd get on your bike on the weekends and your mum wouldn't see you until it got dark and you came back for dinner. Until you know? the streetlights went on. Until the streetlights went on. You're like, I was that. So. Did you cook the foot, kick the footy? Oh, cook the footy. <laughs> kick the footy on no, the I was road. more inclined to cook the footy, really. <laughs> I did forty. I did forty a little bit, but no, I was always going to dance. So, what sort of kid were you? Uh, I was. Mum will say I was naughty, but I kind of think kids need to be a bit naughty. Um, uh, I was good at school, but not. I didn't try very hard, um, so I was just kind of. I always wanted to succeed. Um, I think that's driven me forever. I just whatever I do, I want it to be successful. But um, so I was good at school naturally, um, but not excellent. Like I was never going to be the ducks of the school, but I was happy to be there and saw it as a social kind of environment. Was there an innate desire to, to dance or was it because mum pushed you? Oh, no, she never pushed me. Right. No, she was never pushy. Uh, no, I just always wanted to. I always felt like it was... I always knew that it was. that's what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but no, I never... I was, I've always been grateful that I never doubted where I was going to end up. I didn't have to leave school and go, oh, now what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> I just knew. And I had a mum that also, um, well, she didn't push at all, but she uh, stopped me doing a few things early on in my career. So I got asked when I was very young, 16, 17, to join the sort of tits and feathers circuit in Asia. We used to call it tits and feathers, you know, the, yeah, the, 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 feather, the shows. feather shows. Yeah, yeah in, which was yeah. a big, there was a, a big circuit, particularly in Asia. Um, what did you do for your tits? Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I look great. I had them back then, by the way. <laughs> Were you a chubby kid? <laughs> no. Right. No, I had pecs. Oh, sorry. I sorry. <laughs> um, and I could work a feather from a very young age. Um, but no, I got asked to join those circuits. Yes, and, yes. And I was, as a partner. Yes, yeah, as a partner. And mum, uh, mum said no, and I was furious with her. I was really, I was livid. But now, you know, in her wisdom, I think she had, you know, bigger plans and wanted me to go down this, this avenue that I've ended up going down. And so I'm really grateful that I didn't do that because I don't, wouldn't have the career I have now if I'd done that. Was she a performer? Mum was, yeah, I think she's a closeted performer for sure. And I've seen her perform and she's fabulous. Um, but the opportunities weren't there in that era for her, especially from Perth. She was a competitive ballroom dancer. Right. Um, and I've seen her ballroom dance. I've seen videos of that. And she's amazing. And she's also an incredible teacher. Um, I'm so lucky that I was born into that family. My mum has kids dancing all over the world to this day who just love her to bits. She was scary. Mum was a... She was a hard taskmaster. No, she never stick, but no. she had a, you know, an attitude. Yeah. yeah. No, you did what mum wanted you to do. Um, and But and particularly with boys. So mum's school had a lot of boys. And so I came out of mum's school, whether you're gay, straight or anything else, uh, mum always wanted boys to dance like boys. And so a lot of dancing schools, when they get a couple of boys, don't know what to do with them. And so they come out very effeminate and dancing like the girls, which is not actually ideal for storytelling in a musical, where if you wearing your gayness on your sleeve when you're trying to be a leading man, your opportunities are going to be narrow. Yeah. Where well, I didn't. I came out um, dancing like a man and that was mum's wisdom and 
mummies to get these male role models teachers to come in and teach us like Kevin Johnson oh, Jill, yeah so Jill Jill Perryman and Kevin Johnson were big parts of our family growing up and Kevin would come and teach the boys so mama ended up with a whole stack of boys because her school was known for developing boys who come out dancing like men and also come out knowing how to partner women and that was how I got really my my first um, my first roles was that oh he can do a jive, he can lift a girl, he can do a backflip. That's really what, yeah. how I started getting my work. And, um, and then, of course, Jill went on to play Peter Allen's mom in The Boy From Oz. And Fantastic. so that was like a perfect fit. And I'm named after their son. Todd. So, right. oh, yeah, Todd, yeah. So, Todd Johnson. Yeah. yeah, so I was going to be called Mark right up to the point where mum was in labour, actually. And then on the way to the hospital... Um, Mum thought Mark McKinney was too many M's. Mm. Yeah, a bit bit And said to my dad on the way to the hospital, oh, Kevin and, Kevin and Jill's son's name's Todd. What about Todd? And so that's how I ended up with my name. And now in Hairspray, I'm working with Mackenzie Dunn, who's Kevin and Jill's granddaughter. That's fantastic. So it's yeah. like, yeah. I, don't know, I keep saying to her, I'm named after your uncle. You know, That's brilliant. It's yeah. really great. Um, Mark wasn't your dad's name, was it? Or? No, David. David, what, what did Dad do? So Dad, when I was very young, was a uh, he worked in finance. Then he was a car salesman, and then he was a jail warden at Fremantle Jail, and then Canning Vale Remand Centre. But my mum and he split up when I was nine, so I really got brought up with mum, basically. You're a fan of um, biographies. I am. Joan Crawford. Oh, Joan Crawford. How do you know ben that? Ben Davis, Catherine Hepburn. Oh, my God. You, you all read them all as a kid. <laughs> yes, that, Madeleine Albright. I just read that's, Madeleine that's, that's Albright. That's telling. Yeah, that is. And I had a wonderful Barbara Streisand record collection. <laughs> <laughs> and my favourite album of all time when I was growing up, actually my first album I ever bought when I was growing up was Bernie M's Oceans of Fantasy. <laughs> and I only loved it because it was a double album and you opened it and they were all in those flamboyant outfits singing, you know, Rivers of Babylon and Rasputin and Brown Girl. <laughs> in the ring so yes I think the writing was on the wall from a very <laughs> young age but, but, but what was it about biographies I mean I just dived into the, their world yeah. how do you know this I've researched you have yeah. I didn't even know that was out yeah. there um, even now I've got biographies everywhere um, I don't know just trying to uh, you know just understand what their, those people's lives were like and people I admired yeah. mm. what was the, um, the first show you saw that um, well, had an impact? Uh, a, a touring show to Perth? Or? The Rocky Horror Show was one of them. How old were you? I was young. Right. Young, young, young. Yeah, yeah. mum took us to um, His Majesty's Theatre in Perth. I saw that. That's memorable. Was that uh, um, Daniel Ebeneary? Daniel Ebeneary. Right. Yeah. It was Daniel Ebeneary. And then I met him years later at Kinsella's and I couldn't get over it. Like, oh, that's him. Oh, God, and now I've played the role. Yeah, <laughs> it's yes. like, wow. Um, uh, so that was great. And that was great that mum let us go, go to that too. And then uh, Peter Allen came to the Perth Concert Hall and I sat in probably the second or third row in the centre and I didn't even know like a one-man show was what... I didn't know what that was. But a lady called Sandy Haldupas ran the box office at the Perth Concert Hall and said to mum one Saturday afternoon, do you want to come and see Peter Allen tonight? And I didn't know who he was, and mum didn't really know who he was either. And she said, oh, you know, the guy who sings I Go to Rio. And mum said, do you want to go? And so she had spare tickets, and so we went. And I remember him 
I remember that show vividly. And my mouth was just agog the whole time because I didn't realise that. And I remember thinking, I wonder what it feels like for him to stand there doing that when the crowd is reacting like that. I remember that at that age. And so it was fortuitous that I ended up playing him. Um, and I remember when I went to London, actually, and saw uh, 42nd Street for the first time, I, I remember watching the Where in the Money number, and I was young then too, and the guy playing Billy Lawler, which is the role I ended up playing, I remember watching him doing, doing the tap dance on the giant coin and having that same feeling of, I wonder what that feels like. I mean, that would feel really good to be him. So I've obviously always had that stand-up-the-front type of vibe in me somewhere. Mm. Um, you know, always wanted to be head girl, as they say. And, um, and how lucky am I that I got to... I now know what that feels like. Um, you got <laughs> now to... I like to stand up the back a bit more, to be <laughs> honest. Really? With. Yes, I don't need to be the motor of the show anymore. Yeah. Um, I still love what I do, but... I don't need to wake yeah, up and go... taxing if you have me, to me, 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 carry the show or not. Yeah, it's a lot. You yeah. need energy to do it. Um, you got to be Percy Penguin, though. Oh, I did. <laughs> that was... <laughs> OK, you have done your research. <laughs> so Percy Penguin, that was my first, first theatrical job. So Percy Penguin was bre- kids' breakfast television um, in the school holidays, predominantly in Perth. It was the Fat Cat Fun Time Show, I think it was called, or Fat Cat and Friends. So Fat Cat, everyone knows from the old Channel 7, you know, mascot. Uh, His offsider in Perth was Percy Penguin. Kevin Johnson had been playing Percy Penguin and he was handing over the flippers (laughs) to somebody else (laughs) and uh, asked me if I wanted to to do the role and funnily enough at the same time that I was playing Percy Penguin so from seven to nine every morning I would go to Channel 7 which was not far from where we lived I would put on the flippers and I used to look out his beak and put this big head on and I'd flap around and run the games and have crazy mayhem with fat cat crazy cat and uh, and then at nine o'clock I would then hot tail it over to the travel agency and then do, and I was getting $250 a week, wow. I remember, for doing Percy Penguin, because it was suit, what they called suit, suit work, work yeah. and that, that, was, that paid more, that paid a lot. So I was getting more money for doing um, that for two hours in the morning than then $110 sending, for sending, sending people, people to, to Bali. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was uh, made for a very varied work experience. So, there's more to the man than meets the eye, and as you've ascertained, he is contemplative and a great raconteur. There's more to come in part two as Todd commences his journey through a succession of musicals in chorus and supporting roles, establishing himself as a consummate song and dance man. This all leads to a challenging and confronting time as the musical Crazy For You enters his orbit. It's a fascinating ride and a seminal moment in Australian musical theatre history. Find out why in part two of my conversation with Todd McKenney. I'm Peter Eyes. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. <laughs>